I can't think of a better way to spend my birthday than with 600 of my closest friends. It's amazing to finally have moved into the 50s, my 50s. I wish you weren't laughing so hard about it all. On this uh, Veterans Day weekend, I just want to pause uh, to say thank you to those who have done what many of us never did, placed their lives at risk uh, in order to preserve our freedoms, our liberties, the things that we take for granted. Today, we don't take them for granted. We are grateful for you. I think this week, when we are recalling the treachery that took place a week ago in a little church in Texas, and we are reminded of what it is for people who run into places like that to protect the the lives of others, uh, I think particularly this week, we might be mindful of how great a price has been paid that we might be safe. And so I would love to ask if you are a veteran who has served our nation in any of our armed services, would you please stand up so that we can say thank you to you? We honor you, and we're grateful for all that you have done for us. Before I begin my message this morning, I would like to ask you to pull the insert out of your bulletin. Three and a half years ago, our church did a survey. 450 of you participated in this. It was called the Reveal Survey, the purpose of which was to see how well we're doing at our mission, working together to present everyone mature in Christ. And it provided real data for us to have you self-assess how we were doing. As a result of that survey, we actually, uh, the session made a couple of uh, course corrections. Uh, we focused more on disciple making over the last three years, language you would have heard more about. And we also uh, decided that one of the things we, were, we needed to do was turn our hearts outward. And that became the focus of our most recent Beyond These Walls initiative, of turning the hearts of this church beyond our walls and giving ourselves away as we never have before. So it was a very significant uh, part of our journey. We want to do a follow-up. It's time for us to kind of do another assessment. And so we're asking for you to participate one more time in another survey. Uh, You'll find the details here in the bulletin. I uh, did it. It took about 15 minutes. It's a piece of cake. You've got to sign in and put a, a password there. That's only so that you can get back in later if you decide that you want to stop for some reason midway through the, through the thing. But there's nothing to it, uh, but it's really very valuable. We, it is vital for us to, to know from you how we're doing at our fulfilling our mission. And so I'd like to ask you to please go home and do this today. Uh, in fact, if you need a little help, you'll find uh, some uh, computers available and some people to staff them following the service. If this isn't your cup of tea, they will, they will help you out, okay? Um, so to do this today, don't do this during my sermon, but do this uh, sometime today. This is going to be a very short window of time that we're going to uh, have for this, and we will report back the results as we continue in our journey together, all right? Thank you for your participation in that. Last week, as we, we are continuing in our journey through the, the book of Romans, and we dove into a, a three-word phrase that is really at the heart of the Apostle Paul's theology, and as a matter of fact, it was the heart of the Reformation, which we also celebrated. That three-word phrase is justification by faith. Would you say that? That'll be the first of many things I ask you to repeat today because we got a lot of learning to continue to do. Justification by faith. So to put it simply, let me just remind you this. Justification is a word that came out of the ancient courthouse. It was the opposite of condemnation. And so in justification means that we stand before God and though we deserve his judgment... 
We deserve his condemnation. Instead, what we hear is you are justified. You are forgiven. You are free. That's an astounding thing since Paul has spent two chapters telling us why we are indeed guilty, right? It is summed up in our first memory verse, which the first of five this year, and the first one is Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of... You are such great Bible scholars. Say it again. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul has just spent two chapters convincing us of that fact, and yet we discover we are justified by faith. How is that possible that our sinfulness would be set aside? Well, it was not set aside, of course. It's been removed by the work of Christ, the propitiating sin sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. When he shed his blood, he took our place. He took upon himself our sins. And when the Father looks at us, he sees not us, but the righteousness of Christ that is wrapped around us. That is the wonderful doctrine of justification. There is only one way for us to appropriate that. What is it? By Faith, justification by faith. That is the only way. We cannot earn it. We do not deserve it. We cannot strive to accomplish it. In fact, last week we saw that even the great father of the Jewish nation, Abraham himself, he was not justified because of his good works, his good behavior, his obedience. He was credited with righteousness because he too believed. All of us come to this incredible gift in the same way. A simple declaration, I believe, I trust, I trust you, God, to do this. There is nothing anyone can do to merit God's gracious gift of righteousness. Do you get that? Do you get that? We have got to understand that. We've got to understand that is the heart of the gospel. And all of this is very interesting. And if you're a theological geek like me, it is particularly interesting that there's probably a point where you reach that you say, okay, but so what? What difference does this life of where we are justified by faith in Christ. What difference does this make? And today we come to the so what chapter. I have been waiting for this chapter. I mean, this work I've been doing, this is hard slogging some of these chapters, but man, today, this is good stuff. So I want you to turn to Romans chapter five, verses one through five, and we are going to come to the so what chapter right now. Listen to these glorious words. Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also received access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we hope in the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings. For we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. For the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the word of the Lord. Indeed. Father, thank you for this this pinnacle, this mountaintop promise of yours. We pray, God, that we will do justice to it. And we do so only by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Martin Luther said of this passage, in the whole Bible, there is hardly another chapter that can equal this triumphant text. 
It is as rich as a diet of fudge. I know because I've been feasting on it all week. You know, you've just downed one chunk and now you're about to down another caloric chunk that is so delicious and so much to digest. But that's what we're going to try to do this morning. Five verses, all right? The starting point, of course, is the first word, which is what? And our first task is to figure out what the therefore is therefore, right? And in this case, Paul helps us because in the next few words, he tells us what the therefore is therefore. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, that word we, that's the first time he talks in the second person plural, first person plural. Up to now, it's been I or you or they, but now suddenly this triumphant we, he's with us on this. So he says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith. What he's saying is it's not just about Abraham. The example that he was just offering to us. No, he's talking about us. The we, too, have been justified by faith in precisely the same manner that Abraham was. But still, so what? What difference does that make? And Paul says, as it turns out, it makes an enormous difference. What's the very first thing that we are promised because we are justified by faith? Did you see it? Peace. Do you see it? Say peace. Say the only Hebrew word most of you know. Ready? Shalom, there we go. Who said peace? That's not a Hebrew word. I thought you were sharper than that, most of you people. Shalom, this is what he's talking about. Peace, we have peace. And we have peace, therefore, since we have justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace only comes through Christ. That is the only way that we have access to peace in God. And the peace that this scripture is talking about is not just not fighting anymore. We long for a, a world of peace. We long for ISIS to be destroyed. We, that's the longing that we have. But the biblical peace is more than that. Peace, shalom in scripture, is a, 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 a contented sense of well-being. And that is what we are promised here, this sense of relationship of shalom with God because of Jesus, which is enormously good news when you remember back to the first chapter of this letter. Do you remember what we read that we were under of God because of our sin nature? We were under his wrath. That's the opposite of peace. That's judgment. That's indignity over our sinfulness. And so it is an astoundingly good piece of news to discover that in fact we are not experiencing the wrath of God, but because of our justification by faith in Christ, we have shalom with God. That alone would be the worth worth the price of admission. But as the, the TV commercial guy says, but wait, he says, there's more. He says, not only that, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only do we have shalom, we have access to God. He's not just withholding his judgment from us, he's inviting us into into his throne room. A few years back, I was in Edinburgh at the same time that Queen Elizabeth was in residence in Holyrood uh, Palace down at the bottom of the Royal Mile. And so we heard that she'd be worshiping at the Cannon Gate Church, which is where she worships. And so we made our way over there to see if we could catch a glimpse of Her Majesty. And uh, I was standing right behind the barrier, the closest I could be, when the queen drove up in her brown Bentley. It turned out I was the only one of our group that was on that side. Everyone else was on that side. When she got out, she started to turn towards them, and I said, Majesty! And she turned toward me, and got a picture of the queen waving at me. 
And everyone else in my group has a picture of the queen, back of her head, waving at Mark. It was awesome. But what if I wanted to sit with her in church? What if I had hopped over the barrier to chatter up a little bit about that idea? Nothing good would have come of that, right? I think we're, we're in agreement that nothing good would have come. Suppose, though, that Prince Charles and I were buddies, old polo-playing buddies. And I went to him and said, hey, Chuck, could you angle a pew seat for me next to your mom? And uh, Prince Chuck could pull that off in a way that I never could. That's exactly what we are reading about in this text, right? Because of our relationship with Jesus, the Son, we have access into the very presence of God the Father. And by the way, until the coming of Christ, this would never have been possible. Why? Because of one of the words that we see in that, in that passage. Because of the glory of God. Glory. Say glory. It's not a word that we often use, but it is a very important word to understand God and who he is. Glory means God's awesome, brilliant, overwhelming presence. Remember when Moses was on Mount Sinai, he said, Lord, I want to see you. God said, oh, you do not want to see me. You cannot bear to look at me. If you do, you'll die. That was his glory speaking. So what he does is he hides him in the cleft of the rock and he covers him with his hand so that at least he can kind of walk by and he gets the reflected glory of the Lord. And even that was so great that when he came down from Mount Sinai, his face was so brilliant from the reflected glory of God, he had to wear a mask, otherwise the people couldn't even look upon his face. That is the glory. That's what the rabbis called the Shekinah of the Lord. That's perfect and pure and overwhelming presence that we cannot bear because of our sinful nature. It may be odd for us to think of it in those terms, but I'll bet if you think back to August 21st of this year, you'll have a better idea. What happened on August 21st of this year? The eclipse, right? The eclipse. And we all wanted to look at it, but we dare not look at it without the protection of our very cool-looking glasses, right? It was only with those that we could look upon this, this wonder because our eyes are not made to look directly into such brilliance. We cannot bear it. There's a sense in which Jesus is the, the, those, the glasses that allow us to look upon the glory of God. Because of Christ, we are able to look into him. Paul says that now, because of Jesus' righteousness having covered us, now we have the great hope that one day we can stand unharmed and unashamed in the very glorious presence of Almighty God. And don't forget the word hope. I told you it's a diet of chocolate. I mean, it's just one fudge chunk after another. That word hope that is in there, we hope in the glory of God. When we say hope, we tend to think of it in terms of, I cross my fingers and I hope it turns out. Knock on wood. Hope everything's going to be okay. But the biblical word hope means so much more than that. It, hope in scripture means a confident assurance. It is something unseen and yet something we can be certain of. We cannot yet gaze into the glorious face of God. We do not yet know the complete shalom of the relationship with God that one day we will experience, but we can stand on, rest on, bank on, bet on, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God for one day we shall see him face to face. And that's great, but it's pretty otherworldly too. 
I'll bet most of you know that great hymn that we sing, especially on Bluegrass Sunday in the sweet by and by, right? In the sweet, sing along, by and by. We will meet on that beautiful shore in the sweet by and by. We will meet on that beautiful... We know that song. We sing that song. We love what it promises that someday we will cross over Jordan and we will look upon the face of the Savior. It will be sublime. The problem is we've got a life to live here first. How do we live our life here first? What does our face-to-face, justified relationship with God do for us now before we are in that sweet by and by? And this is where Paul takes us, and it's going to surprise you. He says, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. That's someday. But he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And we say, okay, that's weird right? We rejoice in hope. That we get, that we want to do, but rejoice in our sufferings. That word suffering means trial. It means hardship. It also means pressure in the original Greek. It means pressures. Any way you define that, it doesn't sound fun. The word rejoice could also be translated boast. We boast in our sufferings. Well, that doesn't make any sense to us either. Rejoice, boast, it certainly doesn't sound like anything that we want to celebrate. Think about the hardest thing you have ever faced. I mean that. Think about it right now. Might be the death of a loved one, might be a a lawsuit, whatever. I want you to just think about that for a moment. You You got it in mind? When you were in the midst of that moment, did you say, man, I just feel like rejoicing about this? I remember when I was there, I I wanted to escape it. I wanted it to be done, right? I wanted to run away from it. I did not want to rejoice in it. But Paul says to every one of us, listen, stick with me here. Stick with me here because I want to show you the path from suffering to hope. I want to show you the path to the glory that I've been talking about. We We Christians rejoice in our suffering. First of all, he says, because suffering produces endurance. The Greek word for endurance is hupomene. Would you say that? Hupomene. I think it ought to be on a t-shirt. Everyone, we ought to market them. Hupomene. It means endurance. It means fortitude. It means perseverance. It means persistence. When I was a youth pastor in Bakersfield, I sometimes stirred things up a little bit. I know that comes as an enormous shock to most of you. And as it turns out, I I ended up having a little bit of opposition, sometimes some criticism. Sometimes it was pretty painful. And I was going through one of those painful moments, and a friend gave me a poster that to this day I remember. I wish I had it. It was this one. I wonder if any of you ever saw this poster. You see it? I love that poster. That cat is just hanging on by its claws, and its eyes are so big, and underneath there's this wonderful caption that says what? Hang in there, baby. That's hupomene. You could put hupomene under there. Hang in there, baby, Paul is saying. Don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. One year I visited India. I had the privilege of preaching to a gathering of itinerant evangelists. I've never felt more unworthy in my life. I felt like I should be sitting under their preaching. 
But it was the honor that I was afforded. And I met one guy, an evangelist, an itinerant evangelist who had gone to a particular village to bring the gospel of Jesus to them. But on the outskirts of town, he was met by a rabble who beat him and threw him into a a vermin-infested hut and held him there for six weeks. The whole time he was there, he was praying out loud, he was singing out loud, he was thanking the Lord Jesus for his imprisonment, just like Paul and Silas in Philippi. Remember that story? And finally, the people let him out and they said, how in the world can you be so strong? Tell us about this Jesus who makes you respond this way. And he did. And the whole village came to Christ. That is hupomene. Say it again. Hupomene. It's tough and resilient and even defiant. Here's what it's not. It is not passive submission. It is not meekly bowing our head to our fate. It means our head is thrown back and there's fire in our eyes. And we say, whatever this world dishes out, I can take it and more because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Hupamene. Paul says, when you suffer, you're going to build up hupamene. Suffering produces endurance. And then he goes on, and endurance produces character. The Greek word for character is actually proof. And it describes something that has been subjected to a trial and passed the test. It might also be used to describe a metal that has been fired until every impurity has been removed. So character in this sense means pure, trustworthy, tried, and true. There is a theological word that describes this process in the believer. What is it? Yes! Good job, Mom. Come on, Dad. (laughs) Sanctification. Sanctification is the process by which we are made holy. After, and here you need to understand, after we are justified, justification is a, the theologians call it a punctiliar moment. It takes place at a point in time, boom, one point in time when we say, yes, please, I believe, boom, we are justified before Christ before God in that moment and forever. It is a moment in time. So after we are justified in that moment of time, then the rest of our lives, God sets about the work of sanctifying. That is a lifelong process. Justified in a moment, sanctified in a process of time. And nature gives us a great illustration of this principle. It's the diamond, right? Diamonds, as you know, begin as lumps of coal. But under extreme pressure and over long periods of time, the molecules in that coal actually realign and they turn from this into this. It's glorious. And that's how God is redeeming our suffering. It is the pressure he uses to realign our character to that of his son, the Lord Jesus. That's the character we seek to take on. And he puts it this way when he wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3, One of my favorite verses. He said, we are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. That Shekinah that we talked about, that Shekinah we couldn't come into the presence of, actually God now is transforming us from one little degree of glory, of Shekinah, to another, to another, to another. 
Can you think of, a, of another way that character is built besides suffering? Is character built when we are spoiled? Well, yes, bad character is built. Is, is character built when things are going easy in our lives? Is character built when we never face crisis or disappointment or heartbreak or loss? No! It is not the times of prosperity or peace that shape us. It is the seasons of hardship and disappointment and pressure that turn us from lumps into a gem. That shape us into the image of Christ, the person that God has created us to be like. And do we have any doubt this morning that the world is crying out for more people of deeper, enduring character? God, help us. We need people of character in every station of our life, in every level of leadership. We long for people of character, do we not? Men and women and young people who keep their word and hold their tongue and tell the truth. Men and women and children and young people who do what is right, not what is expedient. Who do what is right even in the dark when no one else knows. That's the true definition of integrity and character. Who fulfill a contract even when it means losing money. I talked to a man this week. His company is probably going to lose $10 million on a deal that they did. And he's going to proceed with doing it anyway because he promised he would. Men and women who are faithful to their marriage vows and who keep their promises to their children and children who honor their parents. We need, God knows we need people of character. When you face trials and pressures and in the strength of Christ endure them, God forges in you a purer and deeper and nobler and tougher soul. And notice how Paul brings all of this full circle. He says, Suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces uh, character, and character produces what? Hope. There's that word again. And hope does not put us to shame. In other words, another definition is it does not disappoint. When we reach the end of the time and we have hoped in Christ, hope in what God for us, we're not going to say, darn, I was wrong about that one. I'm so embarrassed. He says hope will never put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Suffering drives the world to despair. When spouses leave, when businesses collapse, when cancer strikes, when a sister dies, when every last counselor and doctor and banker's advice has been exhausted to no effect, when a crazed gunman walks into a church and mows down 46 people, Apart from Christ, only despair comes. And yet Paul dares to say that our sufferings, and by the way, he knew suffering. Believers in his time were being mowed down too, methodically, by the guy who was in charge, by Nero. He says, though, that our sufferings can produce not despair, but hope. And it is a hope that never puts us to shame. It never disappoints us. How can that be, we might say? And here we finally come to the great punchline of the passage. Because, he says, God has poured his love into our hearts through his Holy Spirit. Guess who just appeared in the book of Romans for the first time? Holy Spirit. It's the first time he mentions him. It's like this dramatic presentation. We have got the God the Father, God the Son, and now here comes God the Holy Spirit. And it is timely because the reason 
we discover that suffering can produce endurance, that produces character, that produces hope, is because of the life-giving, lavish Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead to life. That same Spirit, he says, lives in us and lavishes us with the love of God. He doesn't drizzle it. He doesn't spritz it. He pours it into our hearts extravagantly. If this is not true, then the sufferings of this world, the Sutherland Springs of this world, they have no meaning whatsoever. They are irredeemably evil and wasteful. But you see, Paul believes in something that's much greater than all of that. Paul believes in a gospel that is built upon what appeared to be a senseless slaughter on that Friday on that hill. The heart of the gospel is a crisis that appeared hopeless, but which God redeemed against all hope. And we believe in a Savior who was crucified before he was glorified. We believe in a Savior who said, if you follow me, you must take up your own instrument of execution. You must take up your cross if you want to follow me. We believe in a Savior who warned his disciple in this world, you will have troubles, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's who we believe in. Don't you want to know that hope will have the last word? Don't you want to believe that your present sufferings are not wasted? That your tears are not wasted? One of the Psalms says that God collects every one of our tears in a bottle. Don't you want to know that we have a God who collects every tear in a bottle because it is special and he sets it on his knick-knack shelf because that means something to him. That's the God that we have. The God who uses suffering to purify you and, and conform you to the image of his son. Only the Christian faith makes sense of the hardest things of life. Only the Christian faith can encourage us to rejoice in our sufferings because only we have the spirit of the risen Christ at work within us, redeeming even that which seems utterly irredeemable. On this Veterans Day weekend, we have already made the point of honoring those who have sacrificed so much to protect and to preserve our precious freedoms. And we know very well that many veterans suffer in ways that we civilians who sit under your protection never will and will never understand. These veterans return from battle with emotional and psychological and spiritual scars that plague them from, for their whole lives. And many of them never find their way back to wholeness. What if there was a way that we could help these heroes transform their suffering into hope as we've just heard of today? I think we can. And this Thursday night, we're going to launch a new initiative sponsored by our Celebrate Recovery Ministry, and it's called Welcome Home. Welcome Home is a group that is open to all active and and military and veterans, And it will meet weekly to help these folks work through the unique sets of issues that arise from their service to our nation. I'm proud that our church will be a part of helping our vets move from suffering to hope in the power of Jesus Christ. Aren't you? Every one of us will suffer. It's only a matter of time. That circle's making its way around towards you, right? It's only a matter of time. Next service, there'll be some who don't believe it. That's all right. They'll believe it soon enough. 
When suffering hits, you really, it produces one of two responses. Either you can allow it to produce bitterness and disillusionment and despair, or you can allow it to produce endurance. And that endurance to temper your character and that character to strengthen the hope that you have in Jesus Christ. That is a choice that you are free to make. And I invite us all to choose hope. Let us pray. What a, an epic passage of Scripture this is. Dear Father, we thank you for the gift of the Apostle Paul and, and this uh, glimpse that we have of your glory. I pray, God, for those who are in a place of suffering right now, that they would take your word seriously, that rather than fleeing it, running from it, they would choose to lean into it, believing that somehow you're going to take even that which is awful, and you're going to redeem it and transform it and use it for your good and for your glory and for our glory too. So, Lord, we, we offer thanks to you. We pray that you would be at work in your people to accomplish what you have promised here. Through Christ our Lord.